Welcome to The Chris Rawl Show. You can find all of my writing and all of my shows at www.chrisrawl.com. You can find me on Twitter or on Facebook under The Chris Rawl Show. And you can email me at chris at ceo.com. On today's episode, the difference in philosophy and team building strategy between the Super Bowl participants, the LA Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals. We are a week and change away from the Super Bowl, and it is time to reflect upon the building of a championship team and what can be gleaned moving forward. Part of what I like about tracing leagues and teams, especially over the years, is the way that wisdom is revealed by who ends up making and winning championships. And within copycat sports, how other teams react to what has occurred. The idea that there are many different avenues to winning a championship. And some of those ways that are revealed, they can be shocking for how I consume and understand football. They can be shocking for the people who are in charge of actually building these teams because they fly in the face of Conventional wisdom. This is partially why I'm always raving about the NFL because it finds new ways to not only shock me every year, but change my understanding of the sport of football and all of the various ways it can be mastered. So we're down to two teams, the Bengals and the Rams. And I think right now is an interesting time to kind of examine how each of these teams was put together. Philosophically, and from a team-building perspective, the things that fly in the face of conventional wisdom and the stuff that aligns with what we have known about the sport for a long time, and then how other teams are going to be making sense of those first two things. So the Cincinnati Bengals, they came out of nowhere to make the Super Bowl. Speaking of things that continually shock me about the sport, it's that a team like the Cincinnati Bengals can be 125 to 1 to win the Super Bowl at the start of this year. They had two wins to their name two seasons ago. They had four wins to their name last year. Thus, the 125 to 1 odds this year. And yet now they are four, four and a half point underdogs. And if you are a four or a four and a half point underdog in the Super Bowl, you can win the Super Bowl. And the first thing I think of when the Cincinnati Bengals comes to mind is something that I didn't think was possible, that you can win with a bad offensive line. This is an area that has shocked me greatly because never in a million years would I think this to be possible. I come from a little bit older school style of thinking on the line front because I'm a big believer that you build from your lines outward. Offensive line, defensive line, and then you stretch outwards. That's just the easiest and most efficient way, in my opinion, to build a really good football team. And coming into this year, if you were to ask me about the Cincinnati Bengals, I would say I'm intrigued by them on certain fronts, but man, I cringe at these young quarterbacks who get put behind atrocious lines and fed to the wolves. It submarine the career of a former number one pick, 
David Carr, when he got drafted by the Houston Texans about 20 years ago. Completely submarined his career. Texans run him out there. He's annihilated every year and just his career flames out. I think about it when I'm watching Zach Wilson on the Jets this year, and it was just a similar feeling. Jailbreak, jailbreak. He's going to get injured. He does get injured. Just he's trying to tread water and keep his head up. And that's pretty much his duty in his rookie season. I thought about it last year with Joe Burrow as a rookie. And the Bengals wheeled him out behind this offensive line that was not good by any means. And it was a really similar feeling to watching either Carr or Wilson or a plethora of other rookie quarterbacks on franchises that have not been good. And they haven't had the assets, the skill, the knowledge to piece together an offensive line before putting that quarterback out there. We just see him get beat to hell. Joe Burrow gets injured last year because of that reason. So if you were to pause coming into this year and ask me what I thought about the Bengals, I would say I'm intrigued in a lot of ways, but you cannot win if your offensive line is this. But the Bengals rolled out last year and didn't really do much to improve coming into this year. And I've been wrong in a way that truly has shocked me. Through three playoff games this year, Cincinnati Bengals offensive line has allowed 59 pressures. Nearly 20 per game. A truly astounding amount. They allowed nine sacks against the Tennessee Titans and one. They allowed 16 pressures against the Chiefs on Sunday and one. Some of those salvaged by timely Joe Burrow passes and some of those most notably in the second half salvaged by some timely Joe Burrow scrambles. So we're seeing... Something that doesn't really happen. Uh, and in one case, doesn't have, hasn't happened ever in the history of this league. This comes from ESPN. Joe Burrow was the 55th quarterback in league history to be sacked 50 or more times in the regular season. None of the previous 54 reached the Super Bowl. End quote. So we see a team with a very noticeable wart. A wart that I would tell you is always going to submarine your season. And this isn't to say that other teams are going to go out and just say, we don't need to build up offensive lines. This is fine. We can do whatever we want. But it is interesting in the context of how I perceive football to understand that even in an area that I think you can't just get by in, you actually can if you have the right talent in place and you get the right bounces of the ball in the way that the Bengals had over the course of the regular season and over these three playoff games against the Raiders and the Titans and the Chiefs. So another thing that we've learned from the Bengals is that it pays to be briefly bad if you end up hitting your draft picks. Not a great high piece of wisdom. It's a commonly accepted belief in the NBA where half the league seems like it's tanking every season. They're all fighting for that first pick and a potentially franchise-altering piece. Football is a little bit different from that because the players and the coaches themselves they have significantly less security when it comes to their contracts than basketball players do. So they're always playing hard. You can't really get football teams to tank in a manner that basketball players and franchises seem just more than willing to lean into. It's harder when players are playing for their actual contracts continually and coaches are in the same boat. Now, it's kind of a misnomer that the Bengals have been atrocious for a long time. That bungles moniker. 
because they actually made the playoffs every year from 2011 to 2015, not too long ago. They won the AFC North two times during that span. Their crime over this period of time, while Marvin Lewis is coaching them, was they lost all five of those playoff games. So they fire Marvin Lewis, and the recent past has not been pretty. Five consecutive losing seasons heading into this year. However, if you're looking for silver lining during that stretch, you say, okay, we're bad at football, but that does guarantee us draft capital. Now, getting draft capital means nothing. Unless you are able to draft the correct people. We've seen a million whiffs there. You could look at a team like the Jaguars or the Jets or the Browns until very recently. But those are teams that are continually drafting high and just whiffing again and again and again and again. The Bengals in the last two drafts have had two top three picks. First pick overall two years ago and the number three pick last year. And those two picks have resulted in home runs. Now that number one pick, it's, it's kind of hard to give credit in any way, shape, or form to the Bengals for being bad at football and for drafting who everybody thought should be drafted at number one in that draft, Joe Burrow. And he's proven that he is worthy of the number one pick and he's going to come in and possibly alter your franchise. The second pick is a lot more interesting and a lot more on the organization's shoulders for making a decision that wasn't as tough and flew in the face of what many people thought, myself included. He's picking Jamar Chase, wide out of LSU, over Panay Sewell, offensive tackle out of Oregon. And I give them a lot of props for this particular decision because it looks so far like this has potential franchise-altering decision written all over it. And this decision was almost universally dragged, again, by myself included. Because we all watched the Bengals' offensive line last year. And the vast majority of people who watch a lot of football are in my boat. They say, you can't stay afloat without an offensive line that can protect your quarterback. This flies in the face of everything we know about football. And so, Jamar Chase, yeah, he's great. He, he was awesome with Burrow at LSU in 2019. But you need to fortify your line. Or Burrow's going to get... Another season-ending injury like he had two years ago. And instead, they drafted Chase. And they are seeing the fruits of those labors. So those two picks, Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, they kind of tie together in two interesting ways for me. As I look at the building of a franchise that can win a Super Bowl, championship-level team, what goes into it, what can be gleaned, for me as a fan, for other teams as just looking for that same prize. Joe Burrow ties into one word for me, culture. Culture is very important. It's hard to say that without sounding like a tech douche, but it is true. It's true in football. It is true in any sport. It's true in business. Go down the list. The greatest run in the history of the NFL, the 20 years of the Patriot dynasty, it's built upon this foundational concept. You install a culture that everybody knows and understands how they are accountable and what is expected. Bill Belichick, it starts with you. Tom Brady then comes in on the player side, and it starts with you. And those two were the pillars of this Patriots culture. 
how we are going to build a sustainable long-term championship level franchise. And the Bengals turnaround over these last couple of years, going from a two-win team two seasons ago to Super Bowl contestant this year, it's a result of a lot of things, some that I've discussed and some I'll discuss a little bit more. But at the top of that is Burrow as the cultural tone setter. That is the beating heart of this turnaround. It reminds me of when Joe Burrow was still at Ohio State before he transferred to LSU and became known as Joe Burrow. He wasn't playing for them. He was stuck behind Justin Fields at the time. And I was listening to a podcast with Bruce Feldman, college football insider, because one of the teams that was circling around Joe Burrow was my own college football team, Nebraska. So I'm interested and go, yeah, we could get Ohio State's back quarterback. That sounds great. Sounds like a home run for Nebraska. And Feldman's talking about him and he's saying, look, he's got a lot of skill. You know, people don't know because nobody's seen him play, but he's got a lot of skill. But the most interesting part of him is that he has that kind of intangible quality that he just knows how to command a room. When he's around people, they gravitate towards him, kind of the natural born leader concept. So I'm hearing that and I go, "Ah, yeah, Nebraska could use that. And unfortunately, Nebraska decides we don't really need Joe Burrow because we're content winning three games a year and just barfing all over ourselves every week. And Joe Burrow ends up at LSU. And I thought about that Feldman thing a lot as Joe Burrow became Joe Burrow, especially by the time LSU won the national championship at the end of 2019 season. Because you see that in the way that he plays. The natural born leader, the tone setter, the pillar that people look towards and say, okay, the confidence starts with that guy and it's going to bleed out into everything else. And with LSU, limited success before he came there in a couple years prior, limited success afterwards. I mean, his coach Ed Orgeron was fired within less than two years after winning a national title. But now we're watching what Burrow brought to the table with LSU. We're watching it again during this Bengals run. Some of that intangible stuff but also an understanding that culture has to be set by people. And when you have a leader in that position who is up to the task, and that bleeds into other people. So the unflappable nature of Joe Burrow, you're seeing that now in the Bengals. That Joe Montana style cool. Uh, I mean, he's getting pressured 20 times per playoff game and not even blinking a season after his knee was blown out because he was getting pressured 6 million times per game. The very important quality to have in a football team, especially when it stems from the most important position on the field quarterback. So now Joe Burrow, he has a chance to do something that nobody else has done in the history of football. Win a Heisman, a national championship, and a Super Bowl over the span of a career. Nobody has ever done that. And Joe Burrow has a chance to do that within a two-year span. Pretty remarkable achievement. And one that I think reflects Burrow as a culture setter. And why Bengals, players, coaches, fans extended out 
they all gravitate towards this guy, partially because he's good at football, but also because he is the one who is there setting the tone. Now, this ties into Jamar Chase, the second player that I want to talk about as we discuss organizational concepts, team building strategy, all that kind of stuff. And this one I find to be really interesting, more as a college football fan than as an NFL fan. Because there's a certain idea that all of us have about how you build a championship player, how you prepare somebody to be the very best version of themselves in the NFL. Uh, how you prepare somebody to make that transition from college football to the NFL. Two sports that fall both football, they are drastically different. Now, I know that Kirk Herbstreet and Desmond Howard and the boys, they're going to freak out about this particular Jamar Chase transition, but it is interesting in the lens of what can be gleaned moving forward for players. Because I watched Jamar Chase and his transition, and I say this, there's potential there for paving a new path for elite NFL draft prospects. Because Jamar Chase sat out his final year that he needed to be in college. Just sat it out. Granted, it was a COVID year. Jamar Chase, he's the best wide receiver on the 2019 LSU National Championship squad. A team that started Justin Jefferson, who is now one of the 10 best wideouts in the NFL. And Terrence Marshall, who is currently playing wide receiver for the Carolina Panthers. It was a roster that's littered with NFL talent. And Jamar Chase was the best wide receiver on that team. COVID comes along. We don't know how much of it was tied into COVID and how much of it was just, I'm not risking what I know to be true, that I'm going to be a top 10 draft pick regardless of anything I do this season. So I'm just not going to, I'm not going to risk my body in any way, shape or form. So he sits out the season. And I saw this and I went, I'm sad because I want to watch Jamar Chase play football, but I'm intrigued to see how this affects him at all. Not necessarily where he's going to be drafted because I still think that will be high, but whether we see any effects, whether the transition is now clunkier, whether somebody can sit out for two years from competitive football and just come in and not miss a beat. I wanted to see these things. And I did. <laughs> we all did. Because Jamar Chase jumped right into the NFL after sitting out for two years and did not miss a beat. He's one of the best wide receivers in football. I don't think anyone would argue with you if you said he is one of the five best receivers in football right now as a rookie. And that's astounding. To see this guy jump from two years of not playing into the most competitive league on planet Earth and just say, yep, I belong. And with the exception of people in the preseason freaking out because he dropped some passes in practice, it's just been a seamless transition. He's a game breaker. He's, he's an astounding player with the ball in his hands. And as I'm reassessing the ways that I think about football and I think about building championship teams and players, this is another area that I have reason to pause and think more about what I thought in the past Versus what I should think moving forward because of what I've learned. Because I thought this would be a lot more detrimental to a player than it has proven to be. Marchese took some time off. Great. Stayed healthy. Jumped into the league and he's balling out. The nether one of these areas 
that I wouldn't say is as shocking as the offensive line stuff, but it is an area that has made me take pause. An area that is making me reassess my thoughts on the matter. So that's the Bengals. That's one side of the equation in the Super Bowl. Sure, a lot of people are going through the same exercise that I'm going through right now as they seek to refine how they watch football. And again, especially on the team building side, what they are going to translate to their own squad. What areas of the Bengals can and should be mimicked and what are just random and exclusive to them and we don't actually want to. That's one half of the equation. The other half is the Los Angeles Rams. And there are three areas in particular that I want to hit on. The first two tie in immensely to this conventional wisdom that I have as a football fan that a lot of people have. And the third area flies in the face of everything that I think and know about building a team in the NFL. Kind of an interesting mix, much like the Bengals. So the first area, it speaks to my old gray beard football soul that lines do matter. The Los Angeles Rams are living proof of that. They have leaned quite heavily into building team from the inside out on both the offensive and the defensive side. It's conventional wisdom. This is what football graybeards in 1940 believed, what they believed in 1980, what a lot of people still believe in 2022. The Rams' approach is very reminiscent of how Tampa Bay won the Super Bowl last year. Just domination in the trenches on both sides. It is, in my opinion, the most sustainable formula for playing winning football. Build up your lines, build up your lines, and just dominate people in the areas that matter most to someone like me. It's why I think the Rams will win the Super Bowl this year because they do have an overwhelming edge on paper coming into this matchup on both the offensive and defensive side in line versus line play. This comes from ESPN. Through Sunday, Los Angeles ranked first in pass block win rate, pass rush win rate, and run stop win rate, end quote. So you see that illustrated in those numbers. Incredible pass blocking metrics and incredible all-around metrics on their defensive line. Two lines, again, much like Tampa Bay last year. A team that has a lot of talent all over, everywhere, but Tampa Bay said, whew, we get some lines in place, which we do. All we need to do is get a quarterback in here, and and we're going to be in business. And they swapped out Winston for Brady, and they were in business. Now, that's conventional wisdom, and the Rams also followed that same path. Lines matter. We've known that. They've had that there in the past. But they also plucked out another point of conventional wisdom over the offseason. They said quarterback matters. So if we can emulate what Tampa Bay did, get those lines in place, and then swap out our quarterback for somebody who we believe is better, we're going to be in business. The Rams are interesting because they're kind of an examination of the greater nuance of the quarterback position because the Rams made the Super Bowl in the recent past on the strength of a lot of things, line play being included. And that was with Jared Goff under center. And now they have made another Super Bowl 
on the strength of a lot of things, line play included. And this one is with Matt Stafford under center. Now, statistically speaking, there is not a big difference either way between the yards and the points put up by each variation of the Rams, the Goff Rams and the Stafford Rams. Conceptually, there are differences that are easier to pick up on. The most notable one being Stafford has opened up a significantly more dangerous drop back passing game. Just when we know we're in passing situations, this guy's got incredible arm talent and he can drop back and he can rip it through these small windows. We never really felt that way with Goff. We do feel that way with Stafford. Look at their last two playoff games and you see evidence of that. These high leverage situations when you are pretty reliant upon a quarterback and you say, I need a play, man. The final two throws of the game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Rams had squandered a huge lead. Had a chance to kick a field goal at the end of regulation if they could drive the length of the field in less than a minute. Stafford makes two great throws to Cooper Cup. The last one, just on a cover zero kind of play, individual coverage, he takes the snap, knows the blitz is coming. He throws a perfect rainbow to Cooper Cup, who's beaten his man right on the money, gets tackled, Matt Gay, walk-off field goal. Similar style thing in the San Francisco game, the biggest offensive play of that game. Third down pass on what ends up being the game-winning field goal drive for the Rams. Third down pass. Cup, he's running on a slant. He's actually covered quite well, but Stafford just fits it into an incredibly small window. Right on the money, cannon throw. You see differences there. It's why the Rams were willing in the offseason to trade Jared Goff, their starter, and two first-round draft picks and a third-round draft pick because they believe that an upgrade at quarterback could be the difference between making a Super Bowl and winning a Super Bowl. Those are two different things, for sure. I think a lot of people were turned off to the Jared Goff experience by his appearance in the Super Bowl, how he performed. They play the New England Patriots and their offense and Jared Goff, they are train wrecks. An offense that annihilated the league throughout, they score three points in that Super Bowl. They lose by 10. Jared Goff, he's completely confused and beaten by Bill Belichick and that New England Patriots defense. It's the story of the game. So while you were close to winning a Super Bowl, you also understand that the separation could be, eh, let's get an upgrade at this position. And it might not manifest itself in all the ways through the regular season. We might just be kind of the same. But we're trusting that in the highest leverage games, a team cannot game plan for Matt Stafford like they can game plan for a player like Jared Goff. Conventional wisdom. A little bit more nuanced, but a lot of people Understand that. Yeah, these quarterbacks might have similar stats, but if it's a one-game scenario and this other team has two weeks to prepare, which quarterback do I trust more? That's the storyline of upgrading a quarterback. That's the storyline of Matt Stafford in the Super Bowl against the Cincinnati Bengals. It's show us how you're different from Jared Goff. It's what the football world is waiting to see. And he's going against a defense that's not great statistically but they also just flummoxed one of the best quarterbacks in the game during the second half and overtime of the AFC title game. It's an intriguing storyline to pay attention to as we near the Super Bowl. The last thing about the LA Rams, and this one flies in the face of how almost every team goes about their business. It flies in the face of my own perceptions of what is sustainable and what is successful in the NFL. 
Again, another area that can shock me. I like it. It's cool. The LA Rams. They're proving that it pays to go all in. One of my great wishes for the Aaron Rodgers era in Green Bay. Favorite quarterback, favorite team. Because they were content the entire time until right at the end. You just kick the can down the road. Kick the can down the road. No, we're not going in in this season. No, we're not going in in this season. No, we're not going on in this season. And the Rams have operated with a different goal in mind. And again, I need to point out, this is very different from conventional team building strategy in the NFL. The Rams have traded draft picks more aggressively than anyone. Conventional wisdom will say, you need rookie players on cheap contracts to build a sustainable winning team. Young talent, cost-effective against the salary cap. Makes sense. Really easy logic to follow. The Rams, they're trying to buck that trend. They're zigging one other Zach. They're saying there's market inefficiency here because nobody's really doing this, which is just go all in every year again and again and again. Consequences be damned. Stafford trade that I mentioned earlier that ties into that. It's a lot of assets to trade. You're starting quarterback two firsts and a third. It's a lot of assets to trade for a 33-year-old quarterback with an injury history, with neck problems, with he broke his back at one point. It's a lot of assets to trade. For anybody, much less that player, much less a player that some maybe were arguing, yeah, it's an upgrade, but how much of an upgrade really is this over Jared Goff, who we know is not good, but McVay and this line and these skill position players, they can cover up for it. They're still averaging 30 points a game with Goff at the helm. The Rams go all in on a Jalen Ramsey trade. They trade two first rounders and one fourth rounder to the Jaguars. To acquire top-end talent, but then also have to pay him. Think about these salary cap restraints, and then the draft capital you've pushed out the door. Flies in the face of how most NFL teams want to go about building their teams. Instead, the Rams make that trade. They pay him. He's been the best cornerback in football over his time in the league. They're trusting, no, we want stars. We're willing to pay for it. We're willing to go all in every single year. You see it at this year's trade deadline. When they ship out a second rounder and a third rounder for Von Miller. A player that, tail end of the career, not sure how effective he's going to be. He was okay in the regular season when he came aboard, but not a real game breaker in my opinion. And the fruits of their labors there, they come up at a very convenient time. Tampa Bay, Bob Miller is the best player on the field. Better than Aaron Donald. Better than Matt Stafford. He's better than Tom. He's better than everybody. He was an absolute menace. He was alongside his defensive line counterparts, the story of the game. The story of that game was LA Rams defensive line obliterated Tampa Bay up front. They pressured Brady nonstop all game and forced him into doing a lot of things that Tom Brady normally doesn't do. That's why you trade for somebody like that. It's the best case scenario in your mind is you're shipping these draft picks, valuable draft picks, second rounders, third rounders, is you're shipping them out the door for a former star who you're not sure if he's going to be that good in present day. Well, you're willing to take a risk if you're the Rams. There's another player aligning with this idea of accumulating stars. It didn't cost him anything. But the Rams are willing to go all in. They've done this in years past. They've done it again, probably even more so than ever this year. Whether it's Stafford, whether it's Von Miller, whether it's picking up Odell Beckham after he is let go by the Browns. So again, not a trade, but it's a bet on that star talent. It's a bet on 
we're going all in this year and we're willing to take a chance on what many people think is a questionable locker room guy that maybe he was the problem in Cleveland and you know, he did some weird things with the giants and maybe we just, he's not going to be good for team chemistry or that culture that is important. The Rams said, Nope, we're making a bet on talent and it's paid off. He has nine catches for 113 yards in the NFC title game. Seems like every single week he's been there, he's just gotten better. And the combination of him and Cooper Cup seems about uncoverable for other teams. That's an incredible one-two punch at wide receiver. All of this stuff kind of flies in the face of conventional wisdom in how you build a team. And maybe we see a little bit more copycatting moving forward where others see what the Rams are doing and go, ah, it might be worth to push some of these chips into the middle of the table rather than saving them for next year and two years and three years and four years in a way that, again, most teams have leaned into. So we see two teams, some that have similar things going on, but really quite a contrast in how they both got here. And as we're looking for things that are interesting, things that can be gleaned, I want to end with a quote from USA Today that ties into the way that the Rams have built this particular team, the way that they are trying to go about their business and win a championship, and how A, interesting, but B, different, it truly is in the context of the NFL. So this comes from USA Today. Pending the distribution of compensatory picks, the Rams will only have one pick in the first four rounds. A third rounder they were awarded for the Lions hiring Brad Holmes last year. They currently have just four total picks, two of which are in the seventh round. They don't have a first rounder in 2023 with their next one scheduled to come in 2024. That'll mark seven years in a row without using a first round pick. Yet that won't matter if they win the Super Bowl this year. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Please remember to subscribe and rate and review this podcast on the platform of your choosing. And please help spread the word. Thank you. 